the presenting sponsor of Top Ducks is Netflix, now presenting the documentary series Harry and Meghan. From award-winning director Liz Garbus, the Boston Globe calls Harry and Meghan a fascinating look into a profoundly rarefied way of life. Emmy eligible for outstanding documentary or nonfiction series. Judy Bloom Forever is the feminist coming of age story of a trailblazing author who pushed back against societal expectations to find her voice and doing so allowed generations of readers to find their own voice. Today, I spoke with Davina Pardo and Leah Wolchuk about their film, Judy Bloom Forever. While we think of reading and writing mainly as a solitary pursuits, this documentary really shows us the social nature of reading and writing. And especially shows us the relationship between Judy Bloom and her readers. And at its center is Judy, who is just such a, a dynamic, vivacious, charismatic presence. The film is a joy to watch. Judy Bloom Forever premiered at Sundance, and it's won a number of awards at other film festivals. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. If you enjoy this conversation, please do follow the pod. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Top Docs Pod. And now, my conversation with Davina Pardo and Leah Wolchuk about Judy Bloom Forever. Leah and Davina, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks so much for having us. Hi, happy to be here. You opened with Judy Bloom reading from one of her books, Deanie. In this passage, a gym teacher basically opens the floor to any questions about sex and then prompts them, the girls there, to speak about masturbation. And this is, by the way, the sort of scenario many of us will remember from middle school, junior high school. And Dini, who's our narrator, realizes, wow, this is the word for this special experience that she's been having and wonders if her friends have it too. And then Judy puts down the book and seemingly addressing you and the crew. She raises her own hand, says, let's raise our hands if we masturbate. It's this great moment. I think it really encapsulates a lot of the themes of the film, which we'll get to in a second. But before we do that, can we just talk about her presence, her presence on screen? And we see this in archival footage as well. It's really amazing. It's atypical, I think. I listened to a podcast in which an interviewer was speaking with Michael Lewis, who's the famous author of Liar's Poker and The Big Short and many other books. And he says, most authors are very introverted. And you, Michael Lewis, really seem happy <laughs> and like to speak to people. I got that sense from her, too. Like, she's incredibly vivacious, dynamic. How would you characterize her as a person and her presence? Incredibly vivacious is a great word. She just emits this glow. And you're right. Not all authors are that way. A lot of authors are really happy being contained with a piece of paper and a pen or behind a screen. And I think that's why towards the end of the film, she talks about wanting to break out of writing and being so relieved of being in the bookstore to engage with people. I remember in conversations about the opening, someone said to us, what is the moment in the footage that captures Judy best? Where do you see her personality come out most? And we came back to that, that moment of her reading because it's all there, right? It's like what her writing was about, frankness, radical nature of her work, the way she just goes there in a way that even today we're not always comfortable with. And then her sense of humor, her putting everyone at ease, putting the crew at ease, like immediately making it okay and making it about, it's not self-deprecation, but it's, it's sort of acknowledging, yes, me too. Like I, yes, 
I masturbate. We're all in this together. Like it's totally okay. It's normal. And that's what her work has always been about. Judy is just so alive. Everything about her is so alive. Her words on the page are alive. Her characters are alive. And her essence is just so alive. The way she moves through the world, she's this tiny woman, but she moves through the world with such strength and confidence. And yeah, Divina already said it, warmth and effervescence. She's someone you just don't want to walk away from. You want to listen, you want to lean in, and you want to be around her as much as you possibly can. I miss her. <laughs> I loved being able to spend so much time with her and then spend so much time with the footage we captured of her. And now that we're not really doing that anymore, I rewatched the beginning of the film recently just to get a little daily dose of Judy because I miss her. Your film in many ways is about writing and reading as personal, sometimes private, but also profoundly social. And to me, her presence reflects this. And your film, of course, really captures this. Related to that is making secret things public, I think. And we really learned that as a child, she hated the way that adults kept secrets. And implicitly, I think these secrets were often relationship secrets and sexual secrets. I think they're not just sexual. I think her the secrets that she was pushing back against were just secrets of emotional truth and secrets of the way adults connect to each other because she knew so deeply and so just implicitly how kids connect to each other and how kids find a disconnect in their relationships with adults and their lives. So I think she was just pushing back against the idea that anything should be hidden, like your true self and your true relationship to others should never be based on anything other than honesty. What's the point unless you're just honest with yourself and honest with everyone around you? So I don't think it was just sexual. Judy, she opened our eyes about anxiety, social anxiety and physical manifestations of anxiety, of divorce, of what it feels like when your parents decide they can no longer live together and they're better apart, what that means for kids, death grief, what it means to lose a parent at a young age and how you move through the world without that comforting presence. There are so many truths that adults tried to hide from kids and she just opened them all up. And an interesting sort of flip side is at the same time, she was keeping secrets herself, right? She had these stories inside her head. She was making up stories and no one knew what was going on inside that head. No one knew that she had all these characters she was creating and endless imaginative tales going on. And so I think part of her wanting to write the honest reality of kids' lives was wanting to say, these things that you're thinking that you may not be sharing are also being experienced by others. They're just a normal part of growing up. What you're experiencing, it feels like you're experiencing alone is actually being experienced by everyone in some way, shape or form. Yeah, that's a really good point. In some ways, I think your film captures that, right? Which is an incredibly social film. It's about an author, but it's an incredibly social film. It's really her in sort of conversation with her readers. And I really want to talk about this uh, quite a bit. One is the experience of Judy Bloom herself. You have a scene in which someone that I identify as a man comes up to her on the beach and says that, oh, wow, my friends love these books. We spoke about these books. It often seems like the discussions of books are in groups. It's in packs. I remember this from seventh and eighth grade. It was like a book that you heard about. I love the way you're describing the social nature of the way people absorb and communicate about Judy's books, because reading is such an intimate experience. It's such a private thing. You think about, it's your eyes tracking words on a page that the author has written privately. You know, obviously there's been a group of people, the publisher, the editor that brought it to life, but then you're right. They wanted to share it. Kids, once they read it, they wanted other people to have that same experience. And I think that was 
part of what was so revolutionary about Judy's work. It was they had this intimate experience and then they wanted to broaden that intimacy and have it be a source of connection to their friends. Yeah, that's one of Judy's many magic wands. And also, I think, also create that experience in your experts, who many of whom are authors. Some of them are, quote unquote, celebrities like Lena Dunham, Molly Ringwald, and the great Samantha Bee. Although I should note, these folks are also writers too, excellent writers in their own way. But you also have other folks like, there's so many good ones, I couldn't even pick good quotes. But I really thought Jacqueline Woodson was incredibly insightful. And she also focuses similarly on the same thing, that these are hot books, you know, they're the books that people talked about. I almost felt the way you shot the, these interviews and you juxtaposed them, that it's almost like a, a big sleepover. There's a way in which it seemed like they were speaking with each other. You know, I think there is a subset of readers for whom it remained a solitary experience. That was definitely my experience, that I was in the world of Judy Bloom and I wasn't talking about it to anyone. Even my mom has said to me recently, I knew you were reading all those books, but I had no idea what was in them. A lot of people describe to us reading the books under the covers and just having this intimate experience and relationship with Judy's characters. So I think both are true. I think definitely there was this sort of social element and this way in which word about the books spread through classrooms and schoolyards and things like that and sleepovers. But also there was there was a subset that was keeping it private and quiet because that is, I think, for a lot of readers, the magic of it. It's just you and the characters, you and your relationship to the author or the book. So definitely in terms of how we shot the interviews, we wanted to create a sense of home a sense of intimacy, capture the feeling that we got looking at Judy's paperback, original paperback covers. We were definitely thinking about the bedroom or like a living room, like most comfortable place where you want to sit down and read a book. The other part of this, I think, is that Judy Blue was actually in conversation with her fans directly in many ways, right? She received, she said at one point, 1,000, 2,000 letters per month. But these weren't what you might think of as typical fan letters. These were also people sharing often young girls, but even as they grew older, sharing some of their deepest secrets and concerns and worries. Maybe we could first talk about her relationship with Karen Chilstrom. Judy's connection to her readers goes so far beyond what you would expect from a children's book author or any author, really, because of the way that kids opened their hearts to her and the way that she responded. Sometimes when she got fan mail, she just sent back, you know, a signed brochure, a signed page that was pre-printed. But often if someone reached out to her in a moment of vulnerability, letting her know that there was no other adult in their life, they felt they could trust and they really needed someone to lean on and someone to listen. She heard them and she wrote back and opened the door to a relationship that lasted for weeks or months, or in some cases, years. And Karen is one of those women who first reached out to Judy when she was an early teen. Karen reached out to Judy because she had survived years of sexual abuse from her brother, and she had no one to turn to in her life. And after reading Judy's books, she felt like Judy could understand her and Judy could help. So she sent her first a letter that didn't get into everything that happened. But once Judy wrote back to that initial letter, she said, okay, I'm going to tell her what's happened to me and how I'm managing. And Judy was there for her in a way that no one else was. Karen says in the film that the time that Judy took, those 20 minutes that she might have taken out of her day to respond to her, saved her life because she allowed Karen to tell her story, to not only share what was happening, but really access the feelings that she was processing because it was deep trauma that she had experienced and in some ways continues to re-experience. 
their relationship is just an extraordinary testament to both Karen's courage and Karen's resilience, and also Judy being there in the most present way for, with her readers. She had other conversations like this that carried out over many years. I think that Judy corresponded with, I don't know, I'd say at least a dozen, if not more, letter writers who reached out to her in times of need. Judy introduced us to two of those letter writers, Lori Kim and Karen Chilstrom. And it was because Judy has given her archives to Yale, the Beinecke Rare Book Library now holds all of Judy's archives, including thousands of letters that children sent her over the years and adults. But those letters are under strict protections. Judy and her husband, George, and the archivists at the library have made sure that no one who researches the letters in Judy's archive can contact the letter writers. So if anyone wants to be in touch with them, they would have to go through Judy herself. And so Judy introduced us to Karen and Lori, and that's how they became a part of the film. Just wanted to put that out there because it's not like anyone can just waltz into the library and pick up a letter and see someone's name and reach out to them and say, hey, I saw your letter in Judy Bloom's archive. Like that. Another thing that you show in the opening, I think that is a really interesting cinematic technique is when Judy reads, you often fall into this incredible graphical world. Sometimes it's obviously inspired by the reading. Sometimes it's a little bit literal, but then it tends to go some other place that's less literal. I would say it's like her in many ways. The colors are incredibly dynamic and alive. But can you talk about why you did that and what you were trying to do there? I think it works very well, but just what were you trying to accomplish by doing it? The challenge with the excerpts was how do you portray these passages that in some cases, in many cases, viewers have a really strong attachment to already. They are coming to the film with an image in their head of who Margaret is, what she looks like. We didn't want to illustrate the passages. We didn't want to be illustrative and try to say this is what this moment looked like. We really wanted to capture the feeling of the character and the emotion of the scene. Somewhere early on in the process, we were looking at a lot of films and we watched Love Fraud, the Showtime series. And it had work by this duo from the UK, Martin and Griff, who have this sort of collage style animation that reminded us so much of the pitch deck we put together, which had this same sort of collage feel because it's just looking at like my son's wall, sort of like piece of paper on paper, a photograph, a sort of bulletin board style wall of a, a tween's bedroom. And it also felt like this sort of tactile nature of it felt really appropriate for a film about books. And also we knew that we'd be working a lot with letters and the handwritten letters. So it all came together visually. And so we reached out to this pair and said... Would you be interested? And they weren't super familiar with Judy's work, but they had tween and teen daughters and were really intrigued. And so they came on board. A lot of the ideas process-wise, what we did was create a spreadsheet where we went through each excerpt and listed out what we thought the emotional tenor and theme of each excerpt was and a bunch of visual ideas, which they could take or leave. And in, in many cases, they left them behind and came up with their own Amazing ideas like the blubber excerpt, which I, I love. The idea of this whale being surrounded by killer orcas for a passage about bullying. It was all about sort of the voice and tone of the scene and not necessarily showing what it looked like. One of the things we definitely see here is that Judy Bloom, as we're talking about, she's obviously capturing this general sense of what many people, young people feel in middle school, junior high school and beyond. But also she was dealing with some of her own deep issues. In Deanie, the book we mentioned at the top, it's about a girl who wears a brace from her scoliosis. And it almost seems like Bloom only realizes in retrospect that she was actually working through 
her relationship with her mother and her mother's desire to control her mother's insistence on perfectionism. I'm pausing because I'm just, I'm thinking about this. It's a great question. And I don't know the answer, actually. I don't know when she realized. I think with Deanie that she was probably aware that it was in some way about her relationship with her mother, I think, but I'm not 100% sure. There are definitely other books where Tiger Eyes specifically, where the realization comes much later and it's almost shocking that when she was writing the book, she wasn't thinking about her own father and the loss of her own father. That was a book about a girl who loses her dad and whose mom moves her across the country to live with her aunt and uncle. And it's about grief and loss and healing. And Judy talks in the film about how it wasn't until years later that she realized that book is about the loss of her own father who died when she was 21. It's incredible that someone who is so in touch and aware of her feelings that when she was writing that book, she wasn't thinking about her own loss. But with Dini, I don't know the answer, actually. Yeah, Leah, what do you think? It always felt to us like Judy's own life experience was so deeply connected to each of the characters in, in each of her books. We could see that from the outside, but I'm not sure. I mean, her childhood, her experience as a child and as a teen lives so close to the surface of who she is now, even at 85. Like she says in the film, she has total recall of her life from third grade on. And she has total recall, not just of the things that happened and the details, which she does, like what people were wearing and what the classroom smelled like and sounded like in third grade, but also most importantly, what it felt like to be that age. And so- I imagine when she was writing Dini, she was just accessing what it felt like when she was a teenager. Yeah, it's hard to parse in some ways because it's happening at steep emotional, how aware she was of putting herself into the books and how deliberate it was. In some cases, it wasn't like with Margaret, it was completely deliberate. Dini's a little bit more amorphous there. Yeah, it definitely seems to be about what occurred when her father died. Her father died just as she was about to be married. She's still quite young. But it's also, I think, a lot of ways about the sort of repetition of a relationship, right? Her mother had been someone who didn't talk about feelings at all, which must have been very hard for Judy Bloom to be that woman's daughter. But then she then marries John Bloom, who is similarly, I don't want to say this too negatively, but emotionally constrained. So it's really interesting. She repeats this and it almost seems like her writing career in some ways is a way of dealing with that, of living with people who aren't sharing your emotional landscape. Totally. She says that writing saved her. I think it really, it allowed her in the way that her books allowed us to have like conversations that we weren't having in our own lives, writing the books allowed her to have conversations she wasn't able to have with her husband, with her mother, sort of a place for her to pour all these emotions into. And then in George, finally found this person who has the emotional capacity to go there about everything, but it took a long time to find that person. And she always had friendships. I think she always had close friendships. Maybe not as when she was a young mother, I think not as much, but when she was a kid and a teenager, she had friends who she was very open with. And then later in life, She's, she had very close friendships, but in her marriage, that was a really hard period. And it was a long period. 16 years, that's a long time. As you said, she started this incredible run of books in the 70s. This is really her decade. She marks the 70s, starting with Are You There? God is Me, Margaret in 1970. And she finishes out, I think it's in the same decade, with Forever. I want to talk about Forever a little bit. And I was delighted to see that Bloom has a sense of humor about the book. In it, she moved from some of the earlier themes of bodily development, as we spoke of masturbation, to actually a sexual relationship between teenagers, which is incredibly groundbreaking at the time. And it was interesting in the book, she notes that traditionally girls who had sex in books had been, or even in films like slasher films, were condemned to banishment and death. And she really wanted to show a real relationship. That is exactly how Judy describes coming to the realization that she needed to write this book. It was her 14-year-old daughter, Randy, coming to her and saying, mom, 
every time I read a book about two teenagers who have sex, one of them has to die. Like, can you please write a book where two teenagers fall in love and have sex and no one dies? And she was like, yes, I'm going to write a book about, I mean, they're 18. They're not kids. They're seniors in high school. They fall in love and they make a decision to have a responsible sexual relationship. Catherine's grandmother introduces her to Planned Parenthood. She gets birth control before they have sex. And then she really becomes into contact with censorship, especially the rise of Reagan in the late 70s and the culture warriors. And you have some amazing footage of her actually on these talk shows. She was on Crossfire. She sat literally knee to knee, quite literally, knee to knee with Pat Buchanan, who sat there and attacked her. She was really surprised by this. These scenes, the way, reminded me a lot of another recent documentary, Nicole Newnham's The Disappearance of Cher Height where we also see Cher, another woman sitting amongst men talking about female sexuality. But she does such a great job. She's able to really address them despite being surprised. Again, this I think her personal charisma really comes into play here. I love these scenes. I thought they were amazing, but it was an incredible time where you just had these shows where you would just throw somebody to the lions, it seemed like. And just going back to forever briefly, I think part of what made it so groundbreaking and so scary to people was that not only was it a, a couple teenagers deciding to have sex, but the girl in the relationship enjoys it. She enjoys sex. She talks about what it feels like, what her body feels like. She has orgasms. I mean, all of that was really radical and I think really threatening to people like Pat Buchanan and the rest of the radical right who came along five, 10 years later. That was a context for a lot of pushback. One of the things in that clip with Pat Buchanan, I mean, when we first saw that clip, Judy and George sent us a hard drive with Judy's many media appearances over the years. And there were dozens and dozens. So we we're making our way through the Today Show and Joan Rivers. And then that one came on and I got goosebumps. We were blown away. And I immediately texted Leah and said, you need to look, you need to look at this clip. It's incredible. We knew that would have to become the climax of the censorship scene because it, yes, it shows you so much about who Judy is. It's shocking. It's shocking in the way that she's being attacked in the way that like, Clearly, these books have not been read by the people who are attacking them. Even then, I think we had a sense that it had a relationship to what was happening with book banning today. Even though when we first started the film, book banning hadn't exploded and hadn't turned into the insane mess that it is now, we were still tracking it and paying attention to what kind of books were being banned and what kinds of authors were being attacked. And we could see that there, there was a relationship between now and then. We have a number of clips. One is with David Letterman. He's come up on this podcast before because he seems to show up every time uh, a woman is under attack and it adds in. I'm sorry to say this as somebody who was a hero of mine in my youth. He says, oh, this book about two kids are trying to decide if they're going to have sex. And she says, they're seniors and they are in love. Boom. You know, so economical and addressing him. And you could tell she's a little bit hurt by his. But this is the kind of caricatured way that it, these books are often portrayed. And she points out, no, it's about love. It's about feeling. It's about emotion. I, I knew that she had books banned from schools. And by the way, is being rebanned today in many places, including her current home state. But I didn't know that she had, for example, been a supporter of Planned Parenthood and had received as many as 700 death threats a day. Can you talk a little bit about her subsequent work with the National Coalition Against Censorship? Because she basically decides, I don't want to fight this one-on-one -on -one anymore. I want to be part of a bigger movement. I think there was a point in the 80s when Judy was getting so much pushback from the conservative right, from the radical right, that she realized it doesn't make sense anymore for me to debate the zealots. And she says so much in the film 
I need to join forces with an organization and join forces with all the other authors whose work is being banned. I think that once she discovered the National Coalition Against Censorship and the work they were doing to ensure that there were policies in place for public libraries to respond to parents, small groups of parents who were complaining about books that are on their shelves in their libraries and for school boards to respond to these complaints. That was part of the work that the National Coalition Against Censorship did. And recently, that is the work that the National Coalition Against Censorship has tried to reframe because those policies that were put in place were not really working anymore because of social media, because of the way that small groups of parents in one community were reaching out to small groups of parents in another community and forming this national movement for parental rights and pushing back against books that, again, they had never read. They had just seen paperclips parts of or single words on a single page that offended them or they were fearful of their kids reading. These organizations like National Coalition Against Censorship and the American Library Association and PEN America and the ACLU also have come together to find ways to respond to these larger movements of parents trying to get books off the shelves. And even more shockingly, politicians trying to get books off the shelves in schools and in public libraries across the country. This is happening in legislatures. These are bills being signed into law by governors and multiple states <laughs> right now, 2023. And I think that work fighting here and fighting this withholding of information from kids and this withholding of narratives from kids who need them most. Yes, books like Judy's are still being banned and Forever was recently banned again in St. John's County, Florida, which is the county where Ron DeSantis is from and the county right next to where I grew up in Duval County and where my brother and best friend still live. But mostly the books that are being banned are books about race or books about queer characters or transgender characters. Those are the books that are being most attacked by parents and by politicians. Books written by people of color, books written by queer authors or transgender authors, or books written about characters who are queer or who are black or brown. Those are the books that are being pulled off the shelves. And Judy knows that, and Judy is working to fight this new wave of book banning. Towards the end of your film, I thought it was really admirable of you to address the issue around timeliness and timelessness. A number of your experts, your authors talk about, for example, the seemingly rigid gender lines that sometimes they experience when they read Judy Bloom or that the mothers generally don't work. One of your authors, I think Jason Reynolds, says she was trying to be timely, not timeless, but in being truly timely, her books in a sense becomes timeless. Why did you want to talk about timeliness and timelessness and where do you come down on this? That is one of our favorite lines in the film, and it is Judy's favorite line in the film. So I'm glad you brought it up. Alex Gino, another author that we interviewed, they make this fantastic point that I had not thought about, even though I'm raising my own kids, which is that when they first started writing, their publisher said to them, anything that is like more than 10 years old is considered historical fiction to a child because they literally weren't alive for that period. And anything before their lifetime, even if it was just 10 years ago, feels like historical fiction. Alex there is referencing their own work and anticipating, because I think Alex's first book, it might be almost 10 years. I don't remember the publication date of Melissa, but they're anticipating that that book is going to feel dated at some point to, pretty soon to a new generation of kids. 
I don't know that I fall on one side or the other of this line of is Judy's work timely or is it timeless? Is it historical fiction or is it relevant? Because I think there are definitely parts of the books that would not be written today. Gabby Moss points out in the film, none of the moms work. Like Rachel Lotus, our sex educator, points out every character is down the line binary. There are no non-binary characters or transgender characters. That would not happen today. Thankfully, the publishing industry has finally decided that those voices need to be heard and those stories need to be told. But at the same time, the feelings that kids have as they're growing up, the questions they ask themselves of, should my body be feeling this way? What is happening inside my body? Why am I so annoyed at my siblings? Why am I so afraid of my parents divorcing? What is happening around me? Why am I not understanding anything? Why does it feel like no one understands me? Those feelings, those are timeless. Those feelings are universal, I think. And I think that's what makes Judy's work still so relevant, despite there being some elements of her characters that wouldn't be written today. We end with Judy in the current day or close to the current day. She's on the cusp of her mid 80s, as you point out. But she tells us the reason why after her last major book in 2015, she's decided not to write in long form again. It's not because she lacks imagination. It's because she doesn't want to commit to spending her time in a room. She wants to get out there in the world. And again, as I said, she's in her mid 80s, but we see her biking around the lively streets of Key West. Really impressive. And going to the store, which she bought with her husband, George, in her late 70s, they decided to buy a new book business, tidying up books, greeting fans. Wow, it's just so impressive. Model for what I'd love to be at 85. I think one of the things that we've always admired about Judy is coming of age for Judy wasn't just adolescence. It happened so many times throughout her life. And you see it through the film and her divorces and finding love and deciding to write a book for adults for the first time. She's constantly growing and changing. I think that's probably true for all of us. But Judy really goes to where her heart and her gut is telling her to go. It's something that is just like constantly inspiring us. Yeah, this idea that you decide after 40, 45 years of doing this one thing that you're ready to do something else and then you go do it is incredible. She's got such a youthful spirit. When you see her on her bike, she seems so young and there's a childlike quality to her, but it's important to remember that she is in this like later chapter of her life and she's making decisions based on that knowledge and thinking about how she wants to live this chapter. These books were so much about an early period in our lives, but we really wanted the film to end on this later period that she's in now. I guess I was thinking about Judy as embodying this idea of wisdom. Like she has so much wisdom because she's had so much life experience and she still retains so much childlike curiosity and sense of wonder and connects so deeply and so instantly with kids who are discovering things for the very first time, things that Judy has seen for the past 85 years, but she can still connect to that feeling of wonder when you first discover something extraordinary in the world or just something ordinary in the world. And I think her ability to be both so wise and so open and curious and engaging is definitely a model. I feel like Judy has more energy now than I do and at her age. I think part of what keeps Judy so young is her relationship to her husband, George. I mean, they are so deeply in love and they are both so spirited together. They laugh so much together. They do everything together. They've been through a lot of hard times together too. And I think they're such a model. So not only is Judy a model in her own life, but in her relationship. She's a model for who I aspire to become when I hopefully reach my 80s. 
what's up next for you? Sabina and I are hoping that we're going to continue to work together as a directing team. Um, we are really coming down from this incredible high of producing and then promoting the film. And I think we're both pretty exhausted right now, but I've been kicking around an idea for a podcast for almost 10 years. It's been percolating slowly and it's about to bubble to the surface. Leah and I are starting to think about possible ideas for the next thing. And I have a short doc that I have in post-production that I'm getting back to, hoping to finish up in the fall. That's about a school nurse in Texas who is tracking femicide in the United States, trying to count how many women are murdered by men in the U.S. every year. So it's not true crime, but it's about what happens when that kind of material captures a person's attention and a psychological portrait of how someone contains that all that information and what drives her to do it. I just want to thank you for this film. I'll say it outright. I really just enjoyed watching it. I really loved being in the presence of this amazing woman. And I love being part of this group. I felt like I was sitting there with the other authors. And as a former literature professor and someone who worked in the children's book business briefly, I really want to thank you for this celebration of literature, uh, for the celebration of writing, but also of reading and the importance of books for individuals, for self-discovery, but also for the culture, for a way for us to understand who we are and where we are in the world. Thanks for saying that. I was just thinking about how when you see people approach Judy in tears, when you see how people react to her, they still feel so deeply connected to her and those books and those characters 40, 50 years later. It's astonishing. And it's a reminder of how powerful it can be for a child and how they really like imprint upon you in this really deep way and how dangerous it is that we are denying some kids the opportunity to find that book that will be their Judy book book. Do each of you have a hidden gem a documentary that you don't think gets the attention that it deserves? I'm going to go back to a film I saw in 2001 when I first started thinking about documentaries. I was living in Toronto, right in the neighborhood where Hot Docs is. So I started going to see films at Hot Docs. And there's a film called Missing Allen by a German filmmaker, Christian Bauer. And it was one of the first documentaries I ever really saw outside of an educational setting. And it was this personal film that he made about a friend of his who had gone missing. So it was sort of a mystery, but it was also an essay about friendship and filmmaking and image making. And it totally cracked open for me the idea of what a documentary could be and has stayed with me since then. There's a film that I just saw at Sundance this year. It's called Smoke Sauna Sisterhood. It's really a meditation on the life cycle of a woman told through this community of women who meet in a, in a sauna through every season in Estonia. When I saw it, we had just premiered Judy Bloom Forever, so I was thinking a lot about the evolution of women's sexuality through Judy Bloom's work and through her very mainstream work. And this was an entirely different way to approach the same subject. The women in the film talk about getting their periods, they talk about discovering their bodies sexually, they talk about rape, abortion, losing loved ones, breast cancer, menopause, everything that happens in the life cycle of a woman's body. It's so incredibly shot, it's incredibly intimate. You're like inside the sauna with these women for an hour and a half. It's a very powerful film. 